0: Our gracious God in heaven, we thank you for the blessing of this beautiful morning and we thank you for this Lord's Day. A day that you have set apart for worship of you. A day in which we gather as your people, resting in the finished work of Christ, resting from our worldly labors, focusing our thoughts, our minds, our affections upon you and you alone. We ask today that as we have gathered in worship and so also to open your word and to look at the wisdom of your book we pray that You would guide us and that You would direct us by Your Holy Spirit. Uh, may this not be merely a time of academic study, but may so this also be a preparation for worship and a time of refreshment and engagement in Your holy, inerrant, and inspired Word. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So having prayed for uh, God's, or, or, or that we be led by God's Word, um, let me direct you to the psalm that's at the top of your handout. That's Psalm eighty-nine, fourteen. the first half of that psalm, uh, in which the psalmist declares, Righteousness and justice are the foundation of your throne. And so I could ask the question, how important is righteousness and justice to God? But I really don't need to ask that question, do I? Because as the psalmist says, God's throne, metaphorically speaking, is built upon these two attributes of God. That's, that's quite a statement, isn't it? A throne built upon or the, the legs, if as it were, of this throne built uh, by righteousness and justice. Well like we have typically done then, we probably need to ask the question then, define the terms, what is justice? Now, let me help you here, because I realize that we don't live uh, in a world that is uh, not impacted by our consumption of media. So, to be clear, I'm not asking how is justice defined by MSNBC, No, I'm not asking how justice is defined by Fox News. I'm not asking how justice is defined by one party or the other or by whatever your media consumption is. What I'm asking is, is we're in the book of Proverbs. And as we work our way through Proverbs, how is justice defined in the Proverbs? That is the question. Now... We're going to go ahead and and, and look at this in summary right now, but I really want to encourage you, uh, especially in this time where, as I have said before in this class, we live in an era where semantics where words have grown more and more meaningless in our culture, but we're a people of the Bible, we're a people of the Word, and so we do believe that words mean something. We do believe that when we say justice, we really mean it as God intends. When we say righteousness, we really mean it as God intends. And so, just as a preparatory point, I'll let the Proverbs inform you. As you come to it, ask the question, how is The sage, the writer of the Proverbs, whoever it may be, whether it uh, be Solomon or others, how is the sage, by inspiration of the Holy Spirit, helping define this word as I am supposed to see it? All right, so let's start here. What is justice? As you're going to see, as we work our way through the Proverbs and also in a broader scope, Of uh, the term within Scripture, we can see that it can be used in a number of different ways. One way is in regards to retribution for sin or punishment for wrongdoing. Justice can refer to retribution for sin or punishment. For wrongdoing. Again, just summary right here. We will be looking at Proverbs that are going to deal with both of these perspectives, so so stay tuned. But there's a second way, and actually it's this in the second way, and I would not say it is a primary definition of justice, but it is one that oftentimes we ignore and we don't think of, but it is so prevalent through the Proverbs, and that is a restorative justice. A restorative justice, in, as one scholar defines it, in which those who are unrightfully hurt or, wrongly, or wronged are restored and given back what was taken from them. You may recall we looked at a, proverbs last, a proverb last week that dealt with this very thing, didn't it? And of course, we all think about the Apostle James reference to, reference to this kind of restorative justice. The proverbs is full of this type of description of justice. Not exclusive of retribution and punishment, but it is very important. It is, so to speak, an active type of of justice, uh, as it were. But the main thing that we should look at is justice as it is revealed in God. Uh, Justice is actually an attribute if you've ever studied systematic theology before, you know that there are communicable and incommunicable attributes of God. Justice is one of those attributes of God. Um, if you think about, just for example, we quote this in our worship service all the time, 1 John 1.9. Uh, if we are faithful to confess our sins, or uh, if we confess our sins, He is, two words, and Just. Right? And that's not the only descriptor of uh, this attribute within Scripture, but we use that all the time. And, and so, well, what do we mean by that? What do we mean by God is just to forgive our sins? Well, what do we mean by that? When we pray that, we pray that God is faithful. That's a pretty easy one, right? We can, we can get that. But when we pray that God is just to forgive our sins, what are we praying See, I'm hitting you with it even before we dive into the Proverbs. What do we, what do we mean? What, what does Scripture mean when we pray that? That God would be fair regarding what His Son has done for us and deal with us according to that. Well, that is exactly right, but that's actually another word that's paired often with justice, and that's called biblical equity. What you described is exactly right, but, but that's biblical equity. What, what, does, what is biblical justice? What does it mean in terms of an attribute of God when we say that God is just to forgive us our sins? He's merciful. merciful. Okay, so he, he does not give us what we should be due, right? And that is definitely an attribute of God, but that's not justice. Then he'll do what he said he'll do. Well, in a sense, as God has revealed it, According to his law, that God will, will keep his law. And that is getting much closer to this idea of justice, of this justice. Is, let me help you with this, going down the line that, that Van just pointed out. Is, is every sin punishable by God? Is every sin an offense to a holy God? Yes. Every sin. Yes. Doesn't matter the degree of sin, whether it be a little white lie or axe murder, right? Doesn't matter. It's still an offense to a holy God. Every sin. Does God judge that sin? Yes. That's the gospel, isn't it? I mean, that's one of the great ways to talk about, talk about the gospel to an unbeliever. Because oftentimes, unbelievers will think that we believe that somehow God just lets us slip by in our sin, Oh, you Christians, you, you, you people just think that you're better than others or, or you just think that your sin's not as stinky as others, right? I and mean, that's a great opportunity for say, no, you don't understand, my sin's probably stinkier than yours. Pretty stinky, yeah. But here's the difference. My sin was judged by a holy and righteous God perfectly in His justice, that is, His reigning in judgment over the offense of sin, and how was that judgment carried out? On the cross of Christ. And so, so God is faithful, but so also He is just in the sense that He has judged sin completely, totally, eternally, in pouring out His wrath, His judgment upon His Son, upon the cross, and so the forgiveness that flows to us by faith from the cross is a picture of God's justice. Justice has been served, and I don't remember the lyrics, but somebody I'm sure could. What's that Getty song that we sing um, on the cross that D- Jesus died? God's wrath? The wrath of God, wrath of God was satisfied. Yeah, there's, they're great lyrics. I should memorize them better, I suppose. Uh, but but it's this idea of of God's justice and a witness to it. Furthermore... Justice and God as judge at times in Scripture are hard to distinguish. And really, we don't have to distinguish them. For example, in 2 Timothy 4, verse 8, Paul refers to God as the righteous judge. And the context there is he's talking about this idea that God is the righteous judge. He indeed does judge our sin... And so, by virtue of that, he is always just. There's never a time where God says, oh, Well, this once, this is the one sin that John's committed, I'm just gonna let it slide this time. No, no, never does that happen. Never for any of us does that ever happen. It may seem that way at times because of the 100th time that I sin, a lightning bolt doesn't crash down from heaven, right? But this is a consistent reminder, and it's one of the reasons why we are consistently preaching the gospel to ourselves and weekly preaching the gospel in our worship for this very issue. God is a just God. Justice shall be served. He is the righteous judge. Now, we're not going to get to this today, but let's talk just briefly about righteousness. Uh, Righteousness. Uh, And to to help here, or at least this is helpful to me, you may recall, and I know many of you were present for it, we did a study of the Westminster Shorter Catechism. And uh, that was a fun study to go through. And you may recall that question 14 asked, what is sin? What is sin? And in that answer, it's helpful in our understanding of righteousness. If sin is, this is the answer to the question, any want of conformity unto or transgression of the law of God, then the converse of that, then righteousness may be understood as acting in accord with divine or moral law free from guilt or sin. Is that a fair uh, analogy: If that is in fact a right, and I believe it is a right definition of what sin is, then the converse of that, righteousness, may be defined as acting in accord with divine or moral law, free from guilt or sin. I think that's a really good definition. And incidentally, say what you will about Merriam-Webster Dictionary, that's their definition within the dictionary. So uh, you can look that up uh, if you will. But just like justice, perfect justice is an attribute of God, so also perfect righteousness is an attribute of God. Theologically, God's righteousness may be understood as an ethical dimension. Bear with me here. I know this is a lot of theology before we're getting ready to dive into the practical aspects of the Proverbs, but... Righteousness, theologians say, is an ethical dimension of what? Of God's holiness. Well, You could even say, uh, remove that word, gets a little academic, you could even say that it's an ethical application. If we say that God is holy, then the ethical application of that, that's not complete precisely correct but but it's heading in the right direction could be also described as or defined as righteousness it is and this I'm really being loose with my theology here righteousness is the ethics of a holy god so with with that being said Uh, This gives us, and again, we're going to come back to righteousness. We're not going to get to it today. Uh, We're going to stay focused on God's justice in the Proverbs. But this will at least help us with understanding how these words are going to be used in general in the the Proverbs. And uh, and you may, as we work through these, you may see other words helping defining terms as we work through and bring those up. And that will help. That will help our our, our notes, won't it, in working through this. So I want to start with this discussion question. And I've said this in like, I don't know how many, uh, surely I'm on 20 times now. So let me say it again. My organization of themes and topics may be disputed. Please dispute it. Don't focus on that. What I'm trying to do is, uh, as, they, as they tell you in a in, uh, in, uh, class of homiletics, all I'm trying to do is just create a shelf with hangers on it and using these themes and topics to help hang things to help us work our way through it. Now, keep in mind, because we're getting ready to dive into Proverbs 8.15. Keep in mind that this is a very Western way of looking at things. And I don't mean cowboys and Indians, y'all. I mean like Western thought, all right? The the intellectual ideas of of organization and topics and the way this whole study that I'm doing through the Proverbs is a a very Greek and Roman way of looking at things, not a very Hebrew way of looking at things. Um, That's why, incidentally, as I have said before, why I highly recommend reading the Proverbs in chunks, oftentimes verse or passage at a time, because how many times do we read through the Proverbs and you get to the end of one chapter and there are so many topics there that it's information overload. And you're like, what did I just read? I don't even remember anything. But if you stop and focus on one verse, or sometimes the proverb, the ideal being two or three or four verses, then you can begin to think on it and meditate on it and really grasp what's said there. And yet, it's organized into all of these myriad shifting subjects, moving all the way around like this. That's a very Hebrew way. Of of looking at things where it all sort of blends into this holistic idea. It's why incidentally Proverbs starts in chapter 1 with telling us about wisdom and the fear of God and it ends in Proverbs 31 which is oftentimes thought to be this perfect woman but scholars say well it may have something to do with a woman but it's really wisdom personified. Proverbs 31. The p31 probably not a woman it's probably it is wisdom and so it's 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 like bookends here's the beginning of wisdom is to what to fear god here is wisdom in all of her beauty as she is lived out in the real human flesh of this world and everything in between is this holistic view of what the walk of wisdom looks like that has nothing to do with my notes. I'm not even sure why I went there, uh, but um, no additional charge for that this morning. All right, let's ask the question. How is God's justice witnessed in the world? How is God's justice witnessed in the world? This is on your handout. One of the first ways, uh, no sense of order here or priority, but one way is through civil authority. Is through civil authority. Authority. Let's read Proverbs eight fifteen. By me, kings reign and rulers decree what is just. By me, kings reign and rulers decree what is just. So, what is uh, what is who is me? What could be justice or? Yeah, it's wisdom. So so justice flows from wisdom. But in this case, this is wisdom personified by me. By wisdom, kings reign and rulers decree. And when rulers who are being reigned by wisdom decree, how do they decree? Justly. Justly. That's exactly right. That's the general idea of what this proverb is saying here, isn't it? Now... Of course, this is where everybody's mind immediately went, and it's this question: Does this not mean that kings and this does not? Or does this mean that that rulers, kings, leaders are infallible? No, it, it doesn't. Does it? I mean, we, we, we just went through a, a pandemic. Right? And, and so, so some people agreed with what our leaders were saying. Others disagreed. Some people picked up pitchforks and burned houses over it. Some people thought it was the greatest thing in the history of the world. And what we really saw, everybody that kept their cool saw what? Wisdom leaders are fallible. They're, they're fallible. Do they still have the authority of God as God has placed them in that office? Yeah. Yeah, they do we think, everybody should be as perfect as me. Everybody should be as perfect as me, right? That's our idea, and that's where the criticism flows from. But in reality, what we see is that God raises up fallible men and fallible women to places of authority and they will, in fact, make mistakes. They will, in fact, do things that may even be, in our own opinion, egregious. And so, how do we discern when a ruler is acting unjustly? And by the way, I'm, I, I want you—that's the first question. So I'll repeat it, so you can begin to, to think on it. How do we discern when a ruler is acting? unjustly. And as you're thinking about that, how do we, in our own mind, differentiate between injustice and something that we just don't like because it doesn't agree with our philosophy? How do, we, how do we differentiate in our own mind? What is the difference between... So for example... This is not has, doesn't have to do with justice, but I'll just throw this out here. So let let's suppose that I am I'm, I'm of the pers- political persuasion of limited government. Uh, small government, uh, low taxation, moral and individual responsibility, so forth and so on. And let's say that you are of the persuasion of, no, I believe in big government, I believe that the money should be distributed, I believe that that all of this uh, should be uh, managed by uh, sort of a a upper tier level. And so if we hold these differing views, when we come to the topic of injustice, how do we differentiate our personal political views from that which is truly just or unjust? Wanted to know that for years. How do we, how do, we do that? How do we, how do we discern between those two? Because we all carry with us really, really strong opinions. Right? I mean, sometimes it becomes violent. How do we differentiate between the two? <laughs> huh? <laughs> so, so how do we differentiate between the two? Well, what's the first place that we should go when... Yeah, where's the first place that we should go when we're looking to what is truth and to understand it? We, we go to God's Word. So, it's a process of elimination, isn't it? Uh, one of the first things that we do is, is Scripture explicit on this topic? No. Well, I, I mean a theoretical topic. So, oh. let's talk about, you know, do we think that they should outlaw slicing bread? We should only get loaves. You know, well, is the, is the, is the uh, Bible silent on the issue of whether the government should outlaw sliced bread? Yes. You know, it's silent on that issue, Right. So, so I'm going to look, first of all, you're going to look, first of all, is what's explicit. I mean, I don't need to call the pastor or the theologian or whatever to help me discern this. It's pretty explicit, and there are a number of things like that. And I, I know a number of us who hold to, to the sanctity of life, believe that it is explicitly stated within Scripture. And I, and I, I believe that too. It's really hard to get around uh, saying that, that, that human life begins in, in the womb. Now, there may be debates on when that is and how that is and all that sort of thing, but there are some general things that we can can look at and we can say "That's, that's, that's that's pretty clear. But there are other areas, especially as we get closer to the area of justice, God's justice, that become not as clear as we should hope. And so, what should we do in those cases regarding our rulers? Well, here's one thing that Scripture says. First of all, if we're not clear that it is something that is explicitly stated in Scripture or implicit, that is, it is so clearly implied within Scripture that it may be reasonably deduced even by the simple-minded, then Scripture is very clear. Pray for your leaders. Pray for your leaders they're going to make mistakes. Lots of mistakes. They're going to do lots of things that we totally disagree with on philosophical points. But we're going to pray for our leaders. And what is one of the things that we pray for our leaders? Well, look back at the proverb. By me, kings reign, and rulers decree what is just. Is it fair to deduce from this that at least one of two things that we can pray for our leaders is that they have wisdom. In fact, if James says that we are to ask for wisdom, we are to pray to God for wisdom, is it fair to deduce that we should also pray that God give wisdom to other people as well? I mean, that's a fair deduction, right? I don't think I'm stretching Scripture to say that. I should pray that... Even those that I disagree with should have wisdom. Secondly, what else may we deduce from this proverb? That as our rulers act, in this case decree, so it's by act of, of law, so in, this, in our country this would be involving Congress now, right? Or at least at the federal level. Uh, we, we would ask that they do so justly. One of the things that I've said for... Well, I can't say that. That would be a political comment. Um, so I'll, I'll narrow it to say is that uh, wh- whatever the political persuasion of one, if they're dealing unjustly, I would rather be served by someone that I disagree politically but has the ethics of a godly person, uh, even if I disagree, right? And, and, and even though uh, maybe a year ago, maybe not everybody would agree with that, but I think we've sort of come out of this era of nonsense and everybody's more reasonable now, like, yeah, we really need just laws We need good judges. We need people that will hold up truth and justice. And so, that's what we pray for. We pray for this. Well, let's move just a little bit. Let's just narrow this scope a little bit more. Consider, well, I forgot to read this to you. This isn't on your notes. But uh, Psalm 72. I know this is a study of Proverbs, but you can add this to your note for later. Psalm 72, verses 1 through 2. Give the king your justice, O God. This is a prayer. I should have added that. This is, a, this is a worthy prayer prayed by the psalmist. Give the king your justice, O God, and your righteousness to the royal son. May he judge your people with righteousness and your poor with justice. Well, that, that, that's, that's a worthy prayer, isn't it? I mean, I, look it up for yourself. Psalm 72, 1 through 2. two. See if you can pick that apart. I don't think you can. That's a worthy prayer to pray for everyone in leadership. Incidentally, the psalmist prays that for himself, for it's the king who is praying that prayer. Oh God, give us a king. That, pray, that give us a president. Give us a a congressman or woman who prays that prayer in their morning devotion time. Right. So that's a, that's a worthy prayer. All right. the The next proverb, Proverb twenty nine through twenty nine twenty six. And I don't have that printed out in your handout, do I? Yes. Do I? Okay. Many seek the face of a ruler, but it is from the Lord that a man gets justice. All right, so let's understand the Hebrew first. The Hebrew translated here is seek the face. Uh, what does that mean? What, what does the, 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 the expression translated here, and that's a fairly literal translation of the, of the Hebrew. What does it mean to seek the face? Or what would you think? What would you think that means? So seek the truth of a ruler. It could be, could be, but more narrowly, more practically, what could it mean? Yeah, get, his, get in his presence. Just, just seek the face of the ruler. Meaning, the idea here is is to to get into his or her presence so that we can make the case for something, right? So that we can make a request for something. Uh, how does incidentally? Uh, there are thirty passages in the Old Testament that refer to seeking the face of God. We'll just pause there for a second. If seek the face of a ruler means to get in the presence of that ruler to make a petition, then what does it mean then to seek the... How does this compare then to the similar expression of seeking the face of God? is isn't really. I mean, it's, it's, it sort of makes me think about the little section, table talk, uh, devotion, the quorum Deo. Yeah, doesn't it? Uh, this, this idea is that, that my whole life is lived before the face of God, but, but I do go into the presence of God by virtue of my great high priest. So we're drawing from Hebrews here uh, through Christ. I, I go before the Lord into His presence Uh, and to make my petitions known to him, so forth and so on. Uh, So that's the, the general idea. But what is the sage's implication here? Many seek the face of the ruler, so many want to get into the presence of this leader, but it is from the Lord that a man gets justice. Notice the writer of Proverbs did not say gets an answer. Gets what he wanted, she wanted to hear, but it actually says, "But it is from the Lord that a man gets justice." And so this is sort of this proverbial parallelism that we see within the poetry. But but what is the implication? What's the implication of what the sage is saying here? Yeah, and 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 so if if I get justice from from a, a, a ruler that. Is is not my brand of smokes. Where did the justice come from? Came from God. If I get justice for someone, does you, did anybody pick up on my Rolling Stones reference there? Uh, can't get no satisfaction. Is there, uh, uh, but uh, don't smoke the same brand as me. Uh, um, But if I get justice, ultimately that justice comes from God, doesn't it? So nevertheless, whatever power or authority a ruler has, it's given by God. That's the the general point. And and we're going to get there, but just for context... Uh, and I know we're we're not making very fast progress on our handout today, but I just want to read to you. So I'm I'm working my way in my sermon preparation through the book of Proverbs. I mean, through the book of Romans, and um, getting closer and closer to this passage. But in the context of this proverb, I want you to listen listen closely to what the apostle Paul says. Let every person be subject to the governing authorities. For because of this, you also pay taxes, et cetera, et cetera. It goes on to other areas in which we support the uh, the good government that God gives, or bad government that God gives, whatever the case is. So the general idea is that God's the one who puts uh, rulers into authority, and it is through them that God indeed gives justice, whether we agree with them or not. Okay, let's move on to the next topic. The next topic I'm labeling chance. Which I know make some reform folk uneasy. I'll get an email. There's no such thing as chance, you know. Well, Jesus uses the word chance, so I'm going with Jesus, right? Yeah, <laughs> vote door number one, Jesus. That's what I'm going with. Jesus uses it, but what do I mean by that? And I don't mean that everything is willy-nilly, that anything is outside of God's sovereign control, do I? Well, I don't mean that at all. What do we? What do I mean by using this word chance? Look at Proverbs 18. 17 the one who states his case first seems right until the other comes along and ex- until another comes and examines him the lot puts an end to quarrels and decides between powerful contenders All right, so let's start the first part the one who states his case first seems right until the other comes along and examines him uh, what does this mean just the first part, verse 17, what, what, what's the general idea here? The initial story makes sense right, so, that's right. So the initial story sounds very convincing, and, and then you hear the other side of the story, and now all of a sudden you're not so convinced about the, the first side of the story, right? What, what, what is, a, what is an, an idiom, an idiomatic expression that we use uh, in our culture? that would describe this. That's it. Yeah, there's two sides to every story. How many of us have said that? How many of us have heard someone uh, in in their position and we think maybe become even incensed for them? Ah, ah, this is is right. And then we hear the other perspective and we go, ah, it's not so good. This happens sometimes in, in church government uh, at the presbytery level. Uh, I served in uh, on a on a court case. Uh, not a legal court, court of the church case in our presbytery, and it was a situation between a husband and a wife, and they had had divorced, and the husband was seeking reconciliation, the wife was not seeking reconciliation, and it was a very, very sensitive matter, very difficult matter. 30 minutes in, I'm wishing I had not been appointed to this council, you know, and uh, I'm not big into church government anyway, and here I am, one of five or six on this, and so we, we heard her case, And it was remarkably convincing until he came in the room and gave his case. And then at that point, it's just like, (sighs) you know, how do we work through this? And we worked through it one full day, just hours and hours over this very thing, right? But in general, we all know this to be true. We've all experienced this to be true. In general, what should we glean from this, What wisdom should we take from knowing there's two sides to every story? Don't make up your mind until you've heard it, all of it. That's right. Don't make up your mind until you've heard all of it. And even sometimes when you've heard all of it, you may still not know the truth. And we all, every one of us, we just line up the door and give living example after living example of how we have encountered this. Ironically or maybe I should say providentially, uh, what does the sage say about this? Well, you're going to have this in life. It's going to happen. You're not going to know, in the case of the New Testament, you're not going to know between two really good godly men, which of them is going to replace Judas as an apostle. You've heard both, and you've heard people distinct... I'm elaborating, am I not? But you've heard convincing arguments for both of these solid godly men who should be apostles, and yet only one shall replace Judas. And so what do they do? This would is, this is blow the mind of many modern evangelical Protestants. Yeah, they cast lots. They cast lots in the New Testament, and that's what it says here. The lot puts an end to quarrels and decides between powerful contenders. Why should we be concerned in this case, going back to this dispute that could arise from this, why should we be concerned with only hearing one side of the story? Why is it important to hear both sides? Bigger picture, hopefully the whole picture. What else? Fair to both sides? Yeah, there's a sense of fairness and rightness in that. Yeah, what else? True, true. I mean, especially from a sense of impartiality right? I mean, you feel like you're, you're, you're being fair there. You know, one of the great problems that comes with only hearing one side, and, and it's a, it's, this is rampant, and everybody in here will know what I'm talking about, so I don't even have to use media names to say it. it the, 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 there is the, the problem within our culture of echo chambers. You know what an echo chamber is? You walk into the room, it's sealed off. I say, hello, hello, hi, hi. And I'm hearing this constant feedback. So, so an echo chamber, metaphorically speaking, is something that tells me what I already know, right? So, this is, this is I know many of you probably are not big social media users, uh, and, and I, in many ways, despise social media, but, but many of you have heard the term of, a, of an algorithm. So, what does an algorithm do? It's very, algorithm's a mathematical equation, right? Mathematical equation. It's if-then equation. If John clicks, he likes Greg Magnus's birthday, then show everything regarding to the happiness of Greg's life. Right? Nothing showed up, Greg. I don't know. <laughs> no, I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. But 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 the if-then equation does what? It, it creates an echo chamber. So it's like what I tell friends and family members. If you're wondering why everybody likes all your social media stuff, pal, what's it mean? You've created an echo chamber. The the algorithm's just feeding you all you want to know. Well, in real life, take this out of the weirdo digital world, take it into real life, if we only hear one side of the story, and especially if we're persuaded to that side of the story, it creates what? confirmation bias that's exactly right I have already deduced what I think now it's going to feed me feed me feed me give me more and more and more all the way especially in our culture the echo chambers have created what angst what to do, do with angst fight we get fight we storm capitals we burn buildings we do sort of crazy things because we got to do something with this angst what created the angst The echo chamber. The echo chamber created the angst. Well, the idea here is where I'm going with that is there is to be a dissolve, the echo chamber, by doing what? Hearing the other side, right? It's like one of my theology professors said is if you want to know how to articulate a theological point, learn the opposing argument. It was said of one professor, and I now the name escapes me, uh, that he was so good at articulating the position he didn't believe that everybody in the department believed he believed it. It was that that articulate in describing it. He didn't, but he wanted to fully understand what he didn't believe so that he might understand what he did believe to be able to not fall into the trap of confirmation bias or this consistent echo chamber. And I think this is, this is getting to the heart of what the proverb is talking about here is that you hear one side, you think you've got it, you hear the other side and it causes you pause. And in this case, in the case of a... a of a dispute, the lot is cast. Who controls the lot? Is it a matter of the the wrist? Is it a matter of the pulling? Is it what? What? Who controls the lot? Proverbs sixteen thirty three. The lot is cast into the lap, but its every decision is from the Lord. Incidentally, that's a comprehensive statement. Every. There's not one point of. Chance that is not sovereignly guided by God. And so God is the one who decides the outcome uh, in these cases where it cannot be decided. All right, well, we're out of time. Good job. You made it through two of these. Uh, but uh, we're actually going to speed up. Some of this is repetitive. You're going to see this as we work through this. Uh, Some of this is going to feed on what... So I've taken more time on this front end to help speed us along on some of the others, but we're going to continue to look at the topics uh, on your outline next week, and then uh, we will um, get into the topic of justice in a couple of weeks. Let me pray for us. Our gracious God in heaven, we do thank you that you are indeed a just God, uh, that you are perfect, that you are holy, that you are indeed a God of righteousness. And we thank you that in your perfectness, in your perfect standard of justice and righteousness, that you have had mercy upon us and that you have extended your grace to us, not by dismissing our sin, but by putting it upon Your Son, our Redeemer. And so we look to Christ in His perfect righteousness, in His atoning death, in His victorious resurrection. And our only response to this is to rejoice and to worship You. And so we will. And so we will this morning. We pray that You would prepare our hearts for worship. and We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.